Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you might be in the world watching Answering Religious Error. We thank you for joining us for our live Bible Q&A. And this is your program, and we are uh, answering questions that have been sent to us over the period of the past few weeks, and we try to get to them as quick as we can. We have some that are asked live on our Facebook and YouTube channel, and we appreciate those. If we don't have a chance to get to it, we will certainly uh, add that to the list. And uh, the easiest way is to send us questions at questions at answeringreligiousera.com. And that way we can get the full question. For instance, a um, gentleman uh, last week had posted a question on our Facebook page and some of the content got cut off. So we uh, weren't able to get the full question. I don't believe we received that question. So again, if you're watching today and we haven't gotten to your question, you can resend those questions and uh, we will make sure that they are added to the list. We don't want to overlook anyone. We want to invite you each week to start your week uh, with us on Tuesdays as we are going through a series of lessons called Why I Believe. And that is noon Eastern time each Tuesday. And uh, we just answer a set of questions pertaining to uh, particular Bible subjects. And uh, we had a good study yesterday and appreciate those uh, that could follow us. We do want to apologize yesterday. We had a few technical issues on our end and uh, we weren't able to get the program on the YouTube channel as well as Twitter. Some are starting to follow Twitter now or it used to be Twitter. Um, but uh, we want to encourage you to go back to the Facebook page. The video is there and you can revisit our lesson from yesterday. So again, uh, I, I take some fault in regard to that. Uh, so uh, please uh, visit our Facebook page and we'll try to endeavor to make sure that it is on all of the resources that you can use, including a podcast. We put all of our programs and podcast formats after the show airs. So you can listen to us audibly. If you're a podcast listener, you know what I'm talking about. So go to Spotify or your favorite podcast player and bring up Answering Religious Error. They're all just right there, kind of mix-mashed with one another. Uh, so you may have to sort through to find the episode that you're looking for. But you can start each day with the Daily Answer podcast as early as 5 a.m. Eastern Time. And that's with our own Mark Dunnigan as uh, he spends about 15, 20 minutes encouraging you uh, with godly perspectives on life. So listen to the Daily Answer podcast Monday through Friday, beginning as early as 5 a.m. Bob Myhan's not with us today, but he also has a program on Mondays that we'd like you to tune into. And that is Mondays on Facebook and YouTube. Just look up Bob's Bible Basics. Uh, that's 8 p.m. Eastern time each Monday evening. Right now, he's taking us through a series of lessons on angels and demons. And so uh, it's been a great, great series. Go back and review. I think he's got about six lessons on there now. So um, uh, five or six. And you can go back and listen to uh, that lesson as it as it progresses. And he will uh, get to your questions uh, that you might have in regard to angels and demons. Well, uh, we want to go ahead and bring up our panel today. We have uh, Nick Greenman with us, Mark Gibson, Terry Benton, and Brian Haynes. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. Uh, Mark Donegan couldn't make it, and uh, we want to uh, encourage uh, everyone to, uh, again, ask your questions, questions at answeringreligiousair.com. And if you are watching a shared page, in other words, somebody has shared it to their homepage and you're watching us and you're uh, putting out a lot of comments or questions, we won't be able to see those. Uh, you'll have to go to our Answering Religious Era page on Facebook and YouTube, and we'll do our best to, uh, to, to get those uh, on. Well, again, thank you for joining us. Let's start with a prayer. Nick Greenman, would you mind leading us in that prayer? 
Bow with me, please. Our Holy Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer at the beginning of this study. We are grateful, Father, that you have given us this opportunity to meet in this fashion and to open up your word and to answer the curiosities and, and the concerns that people have uh, across this whole globe and as they send questions in, seeking answers. And we're grateful, Father, that there are people, men and women, who are eager to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. And we pray, Father, that they will have the wisdom and understanding and that we as Bible teachers have understanding and wisdom too so that we can rightly divide your word of truth. Be with us today as we as we open up and study and, and pursue. We ask, Father, that you will guide us all and direct us always through your word and your will. And help us, Father, always understand through your scriptures what it is that you'll have us to do. And Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. And we always like to start our show off with a segment we call Meme Time. Okay, for some reason I've been clicking away and it's not coming up. There we go. All right. We have a meme uh that uh as many people do they like to go through the bible and find contradictions in order to discredit the bible and uh for our purposes of better understanding what the meme is talking about i'm going to go ahead and throw these scriptures up on the screen beginning with genesis 32 and verse 30. here's an individual uh, laughing at the context of what these passages mean or and their views, how they contradict one another. Genesis 32, 30 says, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Then as you see in the bottom of the mean, there are two references from John chapter 1, 18 and 1 John chapter 4 and verse 12. And I'm sure that you can uh, determine what these verses say. Uh, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And then 1 John 4, 12 says, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. So I think we see the point uh, that this meme is trying to uh, mock. I have seen the face of God versus scriptures that say nobody has seen the face of God. So how do we answer this question? Who'd like to start? Let me observe this, that uh, Jacob uh, thought that he was seeing God face to face. Uh, but was he correct? Um, that if he's mistaken, then there's no contradiction. Or if he understands there is a veiled way of seeing God face to face, that is that you're not actually seeing him in his full glory, but you're in a face-to-face -face confrontation with uh, a manifestation of God, then again, that would mean there is no contradiction. And, and so when we look at that and Jacob is able to pin this being, this person down and make him bless him, then uh, we are to look at that a little suspiciously and ask ourselves, is this that he's wrestling with, is that the full manifestation of the glory of the Almighty? And this human is able to pin the whole of the Almighty down 
and make him concede and give a blessing to him. Uh, I have my doubts about that. The fact that Jacob is quoted as saying this, number one, doesn't mean that he is, he is a, he's right in his perception, or it doesn't mean that he understood he was seeing the full manifestation of the glory of God, and he pinned God down and got a blessing for him. So in either case, either horn of that, you can take that and realize, hey, there are figures of speech, and uh, sometimes a person can be quoted who is mistaken, and sometimes he's right, but he's using that term face to face in a different way. He understands this is a veiled manifestation of God that is unusual, and so uh, that would uh, that would pin down and and destroy the contention that this is really a real contradiction in script for my thoughts. You know, one clarification that we need to go to understand as well in the book of John, as Jesus is talking about the very things here and that start off in John one and verse 18 and John six and verse 46, Jesus says it a little bit differently. He says not uh, that anyone has seen the father, except for he is from God. He has seen the father. Um, we might kind of qualify this idea that what we're really specifically talking about in these conversations is the Father, uh, that the Father has spoken from heaven, the transfiguration, Jesus's baptism, John chapter 12. Uh, we hear the Father's voice from heaven, uh, but the concept of having seen the Father, Jesus elaborates, only he who is from God has seen the Father. Now, Jesus is God, so there is a sense where men might see God face to face. Men saw Jesus. He was God. Uh, he is God. And uh, the point is, in that sense, there, there was a seeing of God. But the Bible is actually being more specific than that and trying to get us to understand that no man has seen the Father. Uh, there are some that believe that perhaps some of these uh, visitations of the Old Testament, uh, whether it was Abraham talking uh, it, you know, uh, to, to God or Moses or others, that they might have actually been talking to Jesus. And you know, that's perfectly acceptable because there's no reason that wouldn't be true. But the greater point is, to be specific, the New Testament is trying to tell us that no man has seen the Father, and that uh, that remains to be true. Scripture also mentions, Paul mentions in 1 Timothy, that the Father is invisible. He is spirit. He cannot be seen with human eyes. Um, that's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Then later in chapter 6, he says he dwells in unapproachable light. Uh, there's no way that human beings in our finite physical uh, dwelling can approach God and see God in his glory. Even when Jesus was meant, was transfigured on the mount, Peter, James, and John were overtaken by the, the glory of, of that, his, uh, the brightness of it, the whiteness of his robes, and so forth. And that was, again, just as Terry is mentioning, a manifestation of that. You remember the parents of Samson were fearful. They said uh, there in Judges chapter 13, uh, we, we, have, uh, we will surely die because we have seen God. They thought they had seen God. Uh, God told Moses in, in Exodus, what was it, 33, that uh, you'll see my back, but you will not see my face uh, as, he, uh, as, he, uh, as he passed by him there. 
Um, God can make himself seen so that human eyes can see a manifestation of him. But to see God himself is impossible uh, simply because he is spirit and human eyes cannot see him. So, you know, people can have a, a big laugh about that, but they simply misunderstand the context of Scripture uh, concerning that. There's no contradiction there. You simply have to understand the context in which those statements are made. But if we want to see God someday and be in his presence in eternal life, we need to stop laughing at his word and rather listening to it and being obedient to it. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where context, you know, helps a lot. And through, through the Old Testament, you see various manifestations of God, I mean, appearing to Abraham uh, in a form other than, you know, the one that we would probably see him when we're before him in heaven. Um, you know, you have being in the presence of God, being expressed. I think this term face of God is an expression uh, that, that we might use even today. But we like to we like particulars. Uh, sometimes words like that are held against us. If we say we've seen the face of something, uh, that means that we know the details. We we know its true form and um, that. When, when God appeared, the Father appeared in any way on the earth, we know it wasn't, you know, in that spiritual and, and true form uh, that we see in a human, um, you know, as our expectations might be. So I think the context of these passages certainly helps in understanding. Any other thoughts before we go on? Well, just uh, one consideration, maybe seeing God in his full glory is reserved until the the final time you know we see as you mentioned the other manifestations but when we were getting close to his glory as as mark mentioned uh, where he was only able to see moses was only able to see the back and not the front moses still radiated right he was still uh he had to wear a veil the rest of his days uh because he he shone brightly um and then of course we see the transfiguration of jesus christ so we can see begin to uh, pierce behind the physical realm to see into the spiritual realm in his full glory and so when you talk about the full glory of god uh imagine how much brighter and how much more intense that would be and so he has to tone down uh himself so that we as uh, physical mortals can uh can can uh, withstand it when he did manifest himself uh those few times and then and in regards to Genesis 32, 30, I, I personally don't have an issue uh, with with it being a manifestation uh, of God. I mean, we do have that whole study about did the son, uh, God, the son appear in the Old Testament before he man was manifested as Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and of course, that certainly seems an, op an option here. Um, when you look at the angel of the Lord, he speaks as God, uh, and it and it has that uh, that language that he is that the Lord is speaking, even though it's the angel of the Lord. And so there are those different things like that uh, that we need to uh, uh, remember. There's a lot, there's many different ways to look at it, and that idea of it being a figure of speech is certainly the case because we say those things such as I stood. Uh, in the face of danger, or I stood at the face of death. I mean, that figure of speech exists, and we understand what it means when we say it, even in English. All right, excellent thoughts. One other thing I'll add is that just the terminology here, my life is preserved. He, even Jacob understood that uh, 
you know, to, to see the face of God, as it were, uh, would, of course, require one's life. And at the same time, it shows us that we will see the face of God once we have left this earthly body, as uh, Nick was uh, implying there. And I believe that's primarily talking about the day of judgment there and uh, being in his presence for all eternity. And uh, Brother Bob makes a, a, a good comment, too, in comparing Christ's glory uh, once he returned uh, from the dead. He said, Behold my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Um, and so you, you look at an example like that where, uh, you know, he hadn't yet taken on the spiritual form as we know he has today in on the throne in heaven. Any other thoughts on that then before we go on? Okay. You're muted there. Chris, you're muted. Okay, I'm that guy today. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and bring up our first question then. It says, uh, where is the sinner's prayer in the Bible? And where does it say we chose Jesus? Okay, so uh, I think the first half I can certainly, uh, that's certainly something that we've answered before and should be pretty easy to discuss. Uh, gentlemen? Well, um, there is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. That's one thing that's pretty clear, at least the, the, the mode, uh, the model that you usually hear circulated among many denominations that just say this prayer and they'll tell you what to say. You don't find what they tell you to say and calling that the sinner's prayer that you don't find that in the Bible. On the day of Pentecost, they were told from Joel that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then after Peter explains who Jesus is and says this Jesus you've crucified is now both Lord and Christ, they asked men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, did they forget that he says call on the name of the Lord? No, they didn't. They just wanted explanation. What does this involve? What does calling on the Lord involve? And so Peter answers, what shall we do? By saying, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. When you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you are making a call to the Lord to forgive you of your sins. You are appealing to God. And so that's what it means to call on the name of the Lord is to turn away from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins. That's calling on him to be saved. In Acts 22, verse 16, the, uh, the example there is of Paul himself when he was uh, confronted by Jesus and then for three days was uh, fasting and praying. There was no sinner's prayer that saved him then, or, nor, nor was there a sinner's prayer that saved the people in the day of Pentecost. But in Acts twenty-two sixteen, when Ananias came to Paul, who had been praying for three days and still wasn't saved, Ananias said, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. So now we know two examples 
of the explanation of how to appeal to God for forgiveness of sins, how to call on him. And both those say that baptism is the moment you're making such a call. And then you have 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, the like figure wherein to baptism does also now save us. It's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but it is an answer or an appeal to God for a good conscience, and that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So um, when you are appealing, you are choosing to let Jesus be involved in helping you to salvation. So where does it say Jesus, that we choose Jesus? Well, right there in Acts 2, this Jesus you crucified is now both Lord and Christ. Now, they asked, what shall we do? And they were told, repent and be baptized. Now, can they, do they have any choice? Are they choosing Jesus when they are baptized in the name of Jesus? That's obviously a choice. Jesus says, enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the gate that leads to life. Enter in. He's commanding that. Well, can we can we uh, dismiss the command and say, I'm not going to do it? Of course we can. So whether it says choose in the New Testament, it's always been the case that man can choose. And any command that God gives, he gives you the choice to do it or not do it. He told the children of Israel, he says, um, uh, Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve, indicating he knew you have choice. And God said, choose life. Uh, he said, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. God knows we have choice. Peter knew when he told them what to do, they had a choice in the matter. Those are my thoughts. Covered well. Somebody want to add something to that? You know, uh, one thing I do like to kind of point out, going back to that sinner's prayer idea, uh, prayer is the special privilege of those who are in a relationship with God, a covenant relationship with God. Uh, when the Bible instructs us about prayer, uh, it talks about us calling God our Father. That's that's one of the very first things Jesus teaches about. And that relationship of being uh, us being his children is one that came by adoption. Uh, and that adoption came about when we obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prayer has always been something that has been uh, given and understood to be a special relationship. I think where some people get confused is, you know, they're, you know, well, can't anybody reach out or pray out to God? You know, I like to go back to Genesis chapter 20, where God is talking to Abimelech in a dream. And he tells Abimelech, Abimelech, you're in trouble. You need to get right. And, you know, Abimelech says, well, I didn't know. And God says, well, what you need to do is you need to go to Abraham and Abraham will pray for you. Now, what I think is so interesting about that passage is God and Abimelech are talking right there, but it's not a prayer because a prayer is something that you do a, a petition, a, you know, a presentation before God that has a more significant implication because of a relationship that exists. Uh, throughout the scriptures, it, it, Old Testament, New Testament, we're told that God doesn't have that uh, relationship with people who are in sin. Uh, we're told repeatedly that, you know, God will tell the Israelites, hey, your sins separate you. Um, I think of a husband who's not dwelling with his wife in an understanding way. And uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, your prayers are hindered. Or 
that man in John chapter nine and verse 31, it says, you know, God doesn't hear sinners. He's, he's talking about an old Testament teaching that has been consistent throughout the scriptures that, uh, that relationship isn't there so that a man could pray. Um, you know, something Terry said, that's really important is that baptism is the first plea, uh, of the, of the sinner towards God. It's the, it's the first, uh, intercession and the first, uh, reaching out that a man makes to God. So, and that's an important point for us to understand. And at that point, one has put on Christ, thus the intercession of Christ, which is necessary for prayer. He's our one mediator between God and man. Uh, that intercession can then take place. And so there's a something important about prayer that we need to appreciate, that if one is in sin, walking in sin, uh, that they can't have a hope uh, for prayer to be, uh, to be heard or be answered in the way that one who is in Christ. Brian, I might add to that that some bring up Cornelius as an exception to that in the sense that he was he prayed and and the angel told him that your alms and prayers have come up as a memorial before God. There is a difference though, and I think you pointed it out well, a difference between God in hearing prayers as to his children and those who are in fellowship with him and his acknowledgement of prayer. He acknowledged that, and Terry brought up Saul of Tarsus, Saul, he said, he told Ananias uh, uh, that uh, he is praying. He acknowledged the fact that that uh, Saul was praying, but that prayer didn't save the sinner Saul. He had to arise and be baptized, as Terry pointed out. And the prayers of Cornelius certainly were not a means of salvation because he was told that he would have to hear words by which he and his household would be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin, saved from the wrath of God. So this is this is not a Christian or a a person who's saved by their prayers. They're saved by obedience. But their prayers were acknowledged in the sense that they had good hearts. They were seeking the truth and God made it so that they would be able to hear the truth that they might here we go, choose to be obedient to the will of God. And I'll add why I'm here about the idea of choice. Terry was touching on it, the idea that we can also choose not to obey. And Jesus said in John chapter 12, if anyone rejects my words or not, anyone not hear me and rejects my words, has that which judges him, my word shall judge him at the last day. Rejection is a choice. And if rejection is a choice, obedience is a choice also. You can't have one without the other. Excellent points. I often think about uh, Cornelius' example. You know, his prayer did not save him, but at the same time, God answers prayers from the standpoint that he he gives a person the the opportunity to be saved. Uh, and going back to a point that I often make in many lessons is that God always uses the tools uh, of men to carry out His will. Jesus did the same thing on the road to Damascus. He did not save. Saul on the road to Damascus. He told Saul, go into the city and there you will be told what you must do. In fact, everything Jesus said in that conversation, I can tell you are words that I don't want to hear. Uh, you know, why are you persecuting me? Things like that. And uh, those are the things that motivates us, certainly. Uh, but if you are like Cornelius and you are you know, going to God in prayer, uh, if you're asking for salvation, God's going to send you an opportunity to be saved. Uh, but this idea of sinner's prayer, as we know, is just a way for people to avoid obedience to him in baptism. It's an idea, and it's usually uh, found in the writings of many denom denominations. They'll put a you know worded type prayer and say, say this prayer and you'll be saved. 
And that's just false teaching. That will lead people to condemnation and condemn their soul. It won't save their soul. And um, so we need to look at the, the power of prayer and the privilege of it among God's people. And as far as choices go, I often like to say, um, yeah, it's all nice and fine to say, hey, I accept Jesus Christ or I choose Jesus Christ. But I'd like to say, hey, has he accepted you? And uh, it is a conditional relationship that you have in this friendship with Jesus. Jesus himself said, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So any other co uh, comments on that before we continue? All right. I think our next question, we have a live question. Um, and I think it kind of ties into this when we look at, um, you know, salvation and the way uh, that it's brought uh, about by baptism. And he says, hi, can you clarify what a person should know for his baptism to be valid? I'm intrigued about Acts 9 verses 2 and following since their rebaptism, quote unquote, concerned partly about their knowledge of the Holy Spirit. And that's, of course, about uh, Paul going to the Ephesians there and finding some disciples and, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> questioning them if they had uh, had received the Holy Spirit as yet, which at that time uh, was given to Christians uh, through the laying on the hands of the apostles uh, to carry out the knowledge and the teaching of God's word. And they said, no, we, we haven't heard whether there is Holy Spirit. And he's like, well, what, what were you baptized into? And uh, it was John's baptism. So you see some examples of what we might call rebaptism. Let, let's make something clear. Baptism is a one-time thing. But there are circumstances where people have been immersed again um, for various reasons. Perhaps it was a false teaching, a false religion, a false church. Uh, there are a lot of things that we need to consider. We know people that just run and get baptized first opportunity they get. But is it what we like to say for the right reasons? So let's discuss this, brethren. What are some of your thoughts? I would observe here that uh, John's baptism was separate from knowledge of the Holy Spirit having come on the day of Pentecost, knowledge that Jesus was now both Lord and Christ. John's baptism was teaching, you got to get ready for the kingdom. It's coming. Get ready for the kingdom. It's coming. The Messiah is coming. Everything you had hoped for in the Old Testament is coming. And so this baptism was a special uh, ceremony for those who would say, I'm going to get ready for it. All right. But that didn't mean they knew everything they needed to know about the Holy Spirit, that they knew about Jesus Christ. So they held on to that for years and years and never knew about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they're, they're, uh, they need to uh, re examine their stand now. Jesus has now come. He has manifest himself. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And these people are oblivious to all of that and are living in Ephesus thinking we had the baptism of John. But Paul is here telling us uh, there's not that's, that it's invalidated. Our baptism is invalidated because we said we're going to be ready for the kingdom. We're going to be ready for Jesus or for the Messiah. And we hadn't even heard about it. And so he is now saying, well, you're, that invalidates your baptism. Then you need to know Jesus is that Messiah and he has come and he's the one that provides remission of sins. And the Holy Spirit has verified all of that. 
So now with this new information, they'll, they, they are baptized in the name of the Lord, in the name of Jesus. They get it right. So uh, what do you need to know is the question on the screen. Can you, uh, a person needs to know Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what you see in Acts chapter two. That's what you also see in Acts chapter eight. The Ethiopian eunuch uh, was convinced of the evidence. Well, what hinders me from being baptized? Well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. So here is a prerequisite. What do you got to know? I got to know that Jesus really is the Christ, the son of the living God. And I've got to know that I can have my sins forgiven by Jesus Christ in his name if I'm baptized. And I've got to know that the Holy Spirit has verified all of this so that all of that together is the knowledge we need. To, I need to know I'm a sinner and I need the forgiveness of my sins. So uh, uh, that's that's the prerequisites for a valid scriptural baptism is that I know when I get my sins forgiven, I get a new life. I'm going to rise up to walk a new life in Christ Jesus. And it's all because of the authority and the benefits and blessings Jesus offers me by means of his death on the cross. And my resurrection to a new life is because I know Jesus is in charge. He proved it by his own resurrection from the dead. Uh, those are the, the basic facts that you've got to know in order to uh, for your baptism to be valid. And those people there in Acts 19, they didn't have any of that. They just had the knowledge of the baptism of John that said, when the Messiah comes, I'm going to be his. I'm going to be ready for him. And they missed the boat when it came, when it showed up. You know, I, that was that was a great answer. Um, one thing that I think is important is there's a question like this infers the idea that there are some things we don't know when we're baptized. Uh, you know, maybe somebody doesn't understand why why we sing and we don't use instrumental music or why we take the Lord's Supper or uh, the organization of the church. These are all important things we have to learn about, but maybe they're not things that are there. When somebody asks me this question, and it's a question that comes up from now and then, I always like to go over to Hebrews chapter six, verses one and two. There's a there's a very brief passage there that speaks about something called the elementary principles of Christ. Uh, I like that passage because it again goes on to list a, a series of things that uh, that it's saying are the basics. They're the 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 fundamental. They're the the core idea of what it is that uh, it's all about. And so I like to say, well, let's talk about those things. He lists there, um, and let me read the passage to you. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let's go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, uh, faith towards God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, let me get my hand out where you can see it, and uh, eternal judgment. So, so what's kind of interesting about this is this is a, in a lot of ways, sometimes what we call the plan of salvation, you have to believe, you know, you have to believe. And and Terry said it well to say you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we confess that belief. Um, that's part of faith. Um, it has to come from hearing the word of God. That's probably the laying on of hands, the idea of how does authority get passed on. And and for us today, that authority is passed on uh, through the scriptures. So that authority has to come from the scriptures. I'm being baptized uh, into the resurrection of Jesus so that I have hope of a resurrection and that on the day of judgment that I can be saved. Uh, I have to know why I'm getting baptized. I have to understand that I'm dying to sin. Uh, that's repentance from dead works. 
uh, and indeed, when we look at this list, like I said, it's usually the kind of things that oftentimes we're talking to people about right before they're going to get baptized. Uh, you know, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you understand? You had to hear that from the scriptures. Do you, do you understand why you're getting baptized? That, uh, you know, it's for your eternal life and, you know, the, uh, a fear of the judgment and that you have to change. And so I like to use this passage, and I'm not sure I would say it's a catch-all, but I would say it's a nice place to go. When somebody says, what do I need to know? Um, this might be a good place to launch off Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And, and I like to include Acts chapter 8, uh, when Philip is in uh, Samaria, and he's preaching to them up there. And it says in verse 11, and they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorcery, not, not that's not it. Verse 12. But when they but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And, and so you see that Philip was teaching elements about the kingdom of Christ, and they were uh, also uh, teaching about the name of Jesus Christ. And so there has to be some understanding about who Jesus is and what the kingdom is, because that's what you're joining. You're joining the kingdom of God when you become a Christian. And so you need to know some of your responsibilities that would be tied into that. So I think some of that's going to be necessary, too. So tag along with what Terry said with the kingdom. And and I, I do like the Hebrews chapter six reference that Brian brought up. So some of those basic things are definitely are going to be required reading. And just to buttress what everybody is saying, Paul, when they said we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, that clued him in that they had not heard the gospel. They had not heard the gospel preached on the like they see on the day of Pentecost. And Terry noted that. Note that Peter there in that sermon in Acts chapter two mentions the Holy Spirit three times. Three times. If they had heard the gospel like Peter had preached it, they would have known about the Holy Spirit. Um, he mentions it, of course, by quoting Joel's prophecy uh, and said that that was being fulfilled. He mentions it then in Acts 2 and verse 33, uh, that having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see and hear. And then when he tells them to repent and be baptized, he said, for the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They would have known about the Holy Spirit. So they had not heard gospel preaching as it, as it was to be preached at that time. And it's interesting that after they were baptized, there in Acts 19, verse 5, in the name of the Lord Jesus, then Paul laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them, which might clue us in. I'll throw this in for free. Might clue us into what the gift of the Holy Spirit is in Acts 2, verse 38. But I'll leave that for another discussion. Uh, yeah, and we could have a lot of discussions on this. It's a it's a it's a broad topic, especially because this is the state that a lot of people are in. And um, I kind of have a standard lesson that I do, and I have one on my well, a YouTube channel. If anybody wants to hear it, I can send them the link. But I, this was the one lesson that uh, for me for myself, somebody had texted me and said that this lesson saved their lives. And, and I, I'd never heard anything like that before. And it's just encouraging to know that somebody was seeking the truth <clears throat> in regard to baptism, that they wanted to do it in the right way. Acts 2.38, how much did they know about baptism? They were just told about the prophecies of Jesus. Uh, they were told that he fulfilled them and that they murdered their Messiah. The first thing on their mind is that they've just killed their Messiah. They were cut to the heart, you know, with this, you know, racked with guilt, you might say. And they said, what must we do? 
And uh, did they know about salvation, the church, all the particulars? No, but, you know, we have so much that's given to us now through the revelation of the word. There are some standard things that we need to know and we need to understand our validity. Just getting wet is sometimes just that, just getting wet. And uh, just real quickly, just, you know, kind of look at the idea of being baptized or baptized again. You might want to ask people questions. Um, you know, do they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I mean, that's the prerequisite of obedience to Christ and baptism, uh, that it's for the washing away of sins for an Acts 22 and verse 16, uh, because, you know, our sins washed away before baptism. It wasn't for Saul. Then why would it be for us today? Uh, so we look at questions like that, repentance of sin and so on, by the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as Matthew 28 and 18 says. Uh, I've seen religious groups that deny that, and they say we're, we're baptizing wrong. Uh, if baptism was for the wrong reasons, you need to ask this. I mean, why did you do it? I've had people tell me I need to be baptized because I just did it to please others, uh, wanted to please mom and dad. Uh, maybe they just wanted to get people off their back. Maybe they wanted to just marry someone and say, well, I need to adopt their religion and convert. And the baptism is the quick way into that. And, you know, that's just not the right attitude. Uh, if someone cannot believe, such as uh, a baby in particular, uh, maybe somebody that suffered some mental incapacity, um, you know, there's exceptions for that in regard to the state that we are in, because the prerequisite is that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Um, you know, if it's just about feeling guilty, which again, I, I struggle with that. I, I have no problem with somebody who feels guilty. But if it's just to make you feel better and so you can go back out and sin again, again, that's not why you want to be baptized. Uh, and of course, not truly repenting. The first command given to the newfound church in Acts chapter 2 and 38 was to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Don't say I'm going to be baptized and then I'll work out my issues later. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, and you know, there's a lot of classic examples to that. If you steal a car, drive it to the church building, get baptized. Can you keep the car? No, <laughs> you know. And so we use examples like that because it's a very common sense kind of thing. So there's a lot of things that we could, um, you know, we, we could, uh, you know, discuss and we'll try to save them for another time. But ask people questions, you know, the churches they're baptized in. What did, what, why do they baptize? Is it something they just do? Uh, and I think, Terry, you might have mentioned this. Uh, do they consider baptism to only be an outward showing of an inner faith? That's not a Bible verse. I've heard Christians use that. Uh, do they baptize only for membership in their local church? You know, we can't just hop from church to church to church to be baptized. So if you struggle with some of these things, reach out to us. We'd like to study with you a little bit further on this topic. Uh, we're kind of out of time in regard to this particular topic. We want to get on with some of our other questions, but we'd love to clarify things for you. So reach out to us, questions at answeringreligiousera.com. Any last comments before we go on to the next question? Okay. Let's uh, turn our attention to one that was submitted to us based on Revelation 21, 2, 9, and 10. The question is, preached fervently, the church is the bride of Jesus. <clears throat> Revelation 22, uh, 2, 9, and 10 specifically state the new Jerusalem is the bride. So which is right? Uh, let me go ahead and just post those questions up on the screen. So uh, not the question, but the, the Bible verse. And we'll just uh, read it real quickly to give context here. Uh, Revelation 21, 2 says, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, Revelation 21 and verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the last seven plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, uh, the lamb's wife. And verse 10 says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Okay, so maybe that'll just give us a little bit of context there to our question. Um, let me bring the question back up. And who'd like to take a stab at that? Well, I'll, I'll throw out the easy answer. I'll beat Terry to it. <laughs> um, and the answer is yes, There, that is the church that uh, I'm going to throw my verse up here real quick. We have this great passage in Hebrews chapter 12, 22 and 23, which says, you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, the general assembly and church. So the idea is we're really talking about they are just synonyms for the church. And, and it's important to understand there are a lot of synonyms for the church. It's called the temple of God. First Corinthians chapter three and verse 16. It's called the kingdom. It's called the bride of Christ, called the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Um, and it's just important to understand there's a lot of synonyms to describe uh, the church that Jesus built. So, uh, Terry, did I take away all your stuff or? No, you didn't. You didn't touch on anything. <laughs> no, you did a good job. Uh, Ephesians chapter five says that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So we've got a correlation of the church being the bride of Christ in that in that in that text. But you also have James chapter one that you have been betrothed to Christ. And the betrothal to Christ means that that yes, right now in this stage we are engaged with Jesus Christ and we have a promised relationship. Now Revelation would show the ultimate glory of the of the glorious um, um, wedding so you have in the old testament soon you have the you have betrothal before the ceremony before the grand ceremony is done so I, I don't see any problem with looking looking at the church as the bride of christ the betrothed uh, promised wife of christ jesus and then the great ceremony happening at the end, look uh, of Revelation. But those are my thoughts on that. All right. Any other thoughts then? All right. Just, just that when you're dealing with symbolic language, be careful not to be too literal with it. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah, especially in Revelation. Um, sometimes you just need to let the context speak for itself, and uh, you know, compare with what the rest of the Bible says. And, um, you know, looking at our relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, I've been clicking a lot of other things here. So I apologize if I'm stepping on anybody's previous comments. But Ephesians 5 shows that relationship. I'm sure somebody said that. So sorry to be repetitive. Let's go on to the next question then uh, based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, the question says, is this the rapture? or a greeting of the returning victorious king. Uh, once again, let me bring that passage up. And uh, this is taken from the King James Version. First Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. 
All right. So how, how do we explain that and answer that question? Let me get back to the question. Well, if nobody else wants to jump in, <laughs> right. I'm going to jump in. Yes. Uh, I think the word rapture uh, probably originates from the Latin translation of this word caught up in this text, caught up in, in a Latin translation uses that word rapture. So that's where that idea comes from, but it's been perverted. It's like uh, we've created a new theory about what's going to happen here. And so this text says we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, raptured away and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Well, that will happen. But uh, some doctrines have now been attached to that that are just not in this text or any other text. We're going to be caught up, but we'll ever be with coming back here after seven years. And this is the, the doctrine of the rapture that you commonly hear today is that you're going to be caught up for seven years. There's going to be uh, uh, wars and uh, just uh, terrible things going on for for seven years on the earth. And then it gets cleaned up. And then we then the people of God get to come back and reign with Christ on the earth for a thousand years. That's not taught in the scriptures. And so that rapture theory that has been at, uh, attached to this text doesn't fit what this text says. Um, their theory is the church is going to be caught up kind of surprisingly, poof, they're gone. I don't know what happened to them. But this text said, no, there's going to be a great trumpet. It's going to get your attention. Everybody's going to know. And that you, and God's people will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And they're going to stay there for seven years. They'll ever be with the Lord. So that's the, that's the gist. So uh, is it a rapture in the Latin sense of just being caught up? Yes, that's what's going to happen at the end, uh, at the very end when the Lord takes his people back to heaven. That's what That will be a rapturous catching up that will take place then. And there's, that's the end of the world, too. There's just nothing else on the earth that's going to happen past that moment. Uh, so uh, that's uh, the the rapture or the greeting of the victorious. Yes, this passage talks about that. Those are my thoughts. I would agree with Terry in the idea of being caught up, uh, the idea of being uh, meeting the Lord in the air. There may be somewhat of a wrinkle here of what is called new creation theology. That's sort of a, a, a another idea of returning back to earth where in premillennialism you return back for a thousand year reign in what is called new creation theology that's catching on a lot of places it's the idea that well the words here mean it's the idea of we're, we're greeting a victorious king and then we're going to escort him back to earth to live on the earth and heaven is going to be on earth the earth is going to be revamped restored uh and so, and then that will be the place where God's people will live forever with him on a revamped and a restored earth. And so they use this type of, uh, of, uh, of, of wording of the returning, greeting the victorious king. They say the words mean we're going to greet him and escort him back to earth. But problem is the words don't say that. And the scripture doesn't say that. The scripture says we will meet him in the air and ever be with him. It doesn't say anything about we're going to return back to earth. That has that's 
that has to be added in as additional teaching based upon questionable interpretation of other passages. And so they try to use that again as a return to earth, not for a thousand years, but forever. Jehovah's Witnesses have tried to teach that for many, many years, and others now have, are trying to spin that as a return back to earth. But, but Terry speaks the truth that we're caught up to be with the Lord, and that is an ascension, not bringing Christ back, but we are going to join him, and we're going to go to join him to where our treasures are laid up, and that's in heaven, not on a restored earth. I think when uh, when I talk to folks, they get surprised when I tell them that uh, when Christ comes, everybody's going to resurrect at the same time. You go to John 5, and that when they hear the voice, all will rise from the graves, those who have done well to a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to a resurrection of condemnation. Uh, they're quite surprised that that resurrection is going to happen at the same time. Uh, but Paul, apparently, I guess, had to deal with some of that confusion too because he has to follow up what he wrote in first thessalonians with second thessalonians and in second thessalonians chapter one he he addresses it and he basically says the same thing that jesus said uh and it, of course with a different way of saying it so in verse six of chapter one he says that god is going to repay with tribulation those who trouble you verse seven and to give you who are troubled rest with us when well, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all, all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So when the Lord comes to give rest to those who believe and to be glorified by those who believe in him, he's also going to give out that vengeance and that, that uh, judgment against those who do not know God or obey God. That's all going to happen at the same time. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. This is not going to be done secretly, quietly. There's not going to be some... Uh, mystical just poofing where everyone's going to continue on with their lives and just see random cars going down the highway without drivers or airplanes falling out of the sky that's not what's going to happen it's going to be a moment that everybody will know is happening it'll be a moment of reckoning and every knee is going to bow and there's no escaping it i think one thing that's implied there too is that this time period that we live in uh, needs to be understood that we are in the latter days. Uh, those began, you know, Christ on the cross, the revelation of his new will, the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost. We live in the latter day, the last days. So we are in that time period. We don't know when the Lord's going to return, which shows us the imminent need uh, of preaching his gospel, of obeying it today, because we don't know if we have tomorrow. And that's why the New Testament implies, or not implies, but demands that we uh, in our prayers, if the Lord wills, we shall do this or that. Uh, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know if we'll make it to the end of this day. And that's not something to fear. That's not something to be scared of if you're in Christ, because as the passage says, those who are in Christ and really, uh, you know, for the context of first, uh, first Thessalonians chapter four, go back and read, uh, really the, from verses 13 and following 
And it shows the comfort that we have in what we can look forward to, that the dead in Christ will rise and we will meet them in the air. Doesn't say we will meet them back on earth and that we'll continue in some type of tribulation. It said that we will meet them in the air and be comforted with God. And Nick, you followed up with that in Second Thessalonians chapter one. Those are so important for people to understand. As Peter says in his words, uh, we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And uh, so there, there's going to be no more opportunity for repentance. There's not, I guess the word I'm looking for is this is our last chance. There are no more second chances after this. So let's get it right with God now. Any other thoughts and comments before we end the program today? All right. I really appreciate you guys uh, and these uh, good questions. They've been very interesting today. And let me go back and so I can remove this one from the screen. And uh, we want to invite everyone to come back and be with us next Wednesday at noon Eastern time. As we continue uh, the questions, again, there are some questions that we maybe didn't get to. And so please uh, email those to us, questions at answeringreligiousera.com. And that way we can be sure that we will get to those at some point. And I uh, really appreciate the, um, uh, the you following us today. We've had a good audience. I want to add this last comment that Marsha puts up. We have to seize the day. I, I love that because this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day tomorrow may never come. And so um, those aren't just catchphrases. They're the way that we should live. Guys, it's been great being with you today. Appreciate your knowledge and your wisdom and all of these things. And uh, look forward to studying with you next time. The next time we gather on Answering Religious Error will be uh, on Tuesday uh, afternoon. That's noon Eastern time as we talk about our series, Why I Believe. And so we hope that you'll tune in for that uh, on Facebook and YouTube. We'll do our best to get that on YouTube next week. I failed on that yesterday. And then, of course, back here on Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time to continue answering your questions. But you can start every day with the Daily Answer podcast. That's Monday through Friday, beginning as early as 5 a.m. Join Bob Myhan on Bob's Bible Basics every Monday night. And join the ladies of Older Women Likewise Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and you'll be encouraged. It's a program for women, by women, and we hope that you'll uh, uh, glean and be able to be encouraged by them. So we'll see you next time then on Answering Religious Error.